Hello, and welcome to This Sustainable Life. This is number four of listener questions. If you have questions on sustainability, leadership, sustainability, leadership, my practices, anything related to this podcast, contact me. If you go to joshuaspodek.com in the upper right corner, it has contact connect and you can reach me there. The question today is, can you share more details on what exactly prompted you to make the switch to acting more sustainably and if it was abrupt or gradual? And perhaps more practical ideas on what to do if you have kids, especially picky eaters, or if your schedule is just too busy to prepare meals 100% of the time. All right, that's a couple, maybe two or three questions there. I'll start with the first. It was gradual with, I would say, abrupt punctuations. So it was, my changes have come over the course of decades, accelerating more recently. And there have been a few cases where I would do an experiment that made a big difference. Right now, for example, unplugging my apartment, which I did six and a half months ago, has led to major shifts that I couldn't have expected. Now that they've happened, I'm not going back. I would guess that your question is what led me to sustainability leadership as opposed to acting more sustainably because before the leadership stuff, I did a fair amount. I just didn't share much of it. I became much more vocal when I started. I mean, that change came when I the experiment to avoid packaged food for a week. The physical change was that well, there was for a while my diet got let me say, uh, bland for a while, eating a lot of steamed vegetables because I didn't know what to do. But as I learned to cook, I found that what I expected would cost more money, would be deprivation and sacrifice, missing out on New York City's great food options, and has ended up resulting in, in saving time, saving money, more food variety for my tastes, more convenience, and more ability to help people who don't have access to farmer's markets as I do and to help bring farmers markets to places that are underserved and realizing that if I want to help the underserved, the worst way to do it is to shop at McDonald's or to buy packaged stuff. But you asked about sustainability. I've often traced back each thing that I do seems to arise from the thing before. So unplugging my apartment came from unplugging the fridge. Unplugging the fridge came from you know, all these things. If I go all the way back, the earliest thing that I can think of was when I was a kid growing up, I believed that eating meat was necessary for life, that I would die without it. And I read a book, Diet for a Small Planet. And I just had Frances Moore LePay as a guest on the podcast. She wrote it. She wrote it around the early 70s, I believe. I must have read it in high school, which you put in the 80s. And that was my first awareness that you did not need meat to live. Although it took me until college when I started cooking on my own that I actually implemented it. My family was not supportive of me not eating meat. My parents, at least my mom, would make me eat. Anyway, that's another story. That led to this process of, now looking back, a process of continual improvement that started with avoiding eating meat. Then after a few years of adjustment, avoiding hydrogenated oil, avoiding corn syrup. These aren't necessarily environmental things, more health things. The hydrogenated oil was because I didn't want to do business with companies that were telling me that something was healthier than it was for their profit. And it was sometime after hydrogenated oil and corn syrup, I started avoiding eggs and most dairy, but I'd lived in France for a year and really still liked cheese. So I was vegan except for cheese, which is to say vegetarian. Eventually, a few years ago, this is after 15, 20 years since the first avoiding meat, then I started avoiding packaged food, and that was a story that I just said. Also, somewhere around there was avoiding, I was trying to figure out how to avoid processed foods in general, and I decided what's processed. Is peeling a banana processing? So I started avoiding foods where fiber has been removed. That was like my litmus test for something being processed. 
And eventually I cut out not all, but most doof. Look up my stuff if you want to learn what doof is, but it's the opposite of food. It's food backward. Why was that shift of avoiding packaged food? Why do I single that out as something? That was the first, it was a qualitative difference. Most of the other changes were things to improve my health. That was something to help others. I thought that avoiding packaged food would not benefit me. I thought I was taking one for the team. It was different from the start for that reason. So it was something that I deliberately did to, well, at that time, I thought I had to make sacrifices and deprive myself in order to help others. That began that. But actually, the experiment turned out to the physical shift was small compared to the mental shift. That before that, I thought deprivation, I expected deprivation and sacrifice. And after that, I came to expect joy, fun, freedom, delicious. And that led me to these other changes. I hope that answers the question. There's lots of other changes since. And every change that I've done has led to more. Not everyone, but most of them have led to more and led to joy, fun, and freedom, delicious, community, connection, things like things that I like. So each one keeps leading me to more. Yeah, everyone asks practical questions, which is what your second question was, like what to do with kids. But again, the mental shift, I believe, has to precede everything. If people expect that acting a certain way will lead to something that they don't like or can't envision, they're not going to... Let me give you an example. I ask a lot of people these days, can you imagine a world without pollution? Almost no one can, and the people who can tend to describe it as... You know, they expect if, if the world falls apart, there's some post-apocalyptic Mad Max type scenario where people, you know, after the gasoline is gone and we're living in this, some dystopic future. That's what they think of. A lot of people can't imagine a world without pollution. And if you ask a person who their vision of less and less pollution approaches a dystopic future or reverting to the Stone Age or medieval times, well, if you ask someone like that to avoid straws or go meatless Mondays, you may get compliance in the short term, but if in their mind, taking more and more steps on that path leads to never seeing their mother again who lives on the opposite coast, you're going to get long-term opposition and they're not going to find you credible. I think there's a lot of people who just feel like you're idiots for saying don't pollute so much because to them they're thinking you're just hastening a disaster that we are trying to avoid, but what you're doing doesn't help. It's like imagine someone who wants to diet and lose fat from their body for whatever reason, but they believe that the body has a set point or they believe that dieting raises body weight in the long run. A lot of people believe that. If they believe that, are they going to try to diet? If they do try to diet, I should say not diet, but let's say change their lifestyle in a way that will lead to changed diet. I think they're less likely to try. And if they try, they're less likely to succeed. If they simply believe the body has a set point, no matter what you do, it will always return to a certain weight or believes that if you diet, no matter what happens, you may lose weight, but it will come back more. Someone like that probably isn't going to try. And that's what it's like with a lot of people on the environment. Without a mindset shift, people are fighting against themselves. I have not seen giving base practical advice, no matter how simple. I don't see it work that much without, I mean, sometimes it works if it's someone who's on the verge of a change, but then you're lucky. The person is just about to change from whatever reasons elsewhere in their life. But you can't really count on that. So I really, this is why I focus on the Spodek method and not on giving people instruction. I cannot stand CCCSC, convincing, cajoling, coercing, seeking compliance. And so this is me trying to avoid answering your question the way that you're asking it because I feel that it's counterproductive. Without a mental shift, it just 
leads people to justify what they're thinking before. One major mindset shift change for me is that parents have raised kids without polluting for 300,000 years. I'm not a father. I'm an uncle. I've seen my nieces and nephews grow. But far and wide, I see these kids seem kind of spoiled today relative to before. Not, not the ones in my family, of course. But I, I'm joking around at that part. But I ask myself, would indigenous people today, raising their kids however they raise them, seeing our kids raised like ours, would they want their kids to be raised like ours? I tend to think probably not. I think people who live something like how our ancestors did for something like 300,000 years, and of course, there's huge variety of how people lived, but before agriculture, I think there was a lot of hunting and gathering, and therefore, these egalitarian, free societies. I think that they wouldn't like living like us. Now, there's this knee-jerk response to think of they have higher infant mortality, but I hope you can table those notions of of higher infant mortality for a bit, of just how they raise the kids when they succeed. Now, your question of, oh, and so practical advice on raising kids. Again, I don't have kids. As for food, I can tell you that me growing up, my family, we were latchkey kids. So every day when we came home, there was a note that said whose kids' turn it was to cook. And we had to cook. I ask a lot of parents, at what age is it appropriate, in your opinion, for children to handle a very sharp knife. I think of this because the Hadza, the San, these indigenous cultures, they give their boys uh, bows and arrows at age four, age five years old. And then they're off hunting wild animals, you know, small game, not the big stuff that comes later. Not being a parent, I would think something like five years old is when they can start. Now, are they going to hurt themselves? Of course. Everyone's going to hurt themselves when they first get a knife at whatever age. But I don't, I don't have a stand here because I don't have a personal experience raising a kid. But we, ra- we cooked, and I would think, I can't think of what I would want to do more with my children if I had children than one of the things being spending time with nature and food being a big part of nature. Well, it, if it's, it is with me when it's fresh fruits and vegetables. With a doof, that's not really very natural, if you know what I mean by nature. But have the kids cook. Have the kids make food. It seems to me if you're busy have them cook. And maybe that takes a few times of teaching them to cook. But it also seems like something, if I watch TV with my kids, I have time to cook with my kids. I don't have a TV. I know a lot of people don't have TVs. So if people have time to watch TV, and the average American watches five hours of TV a day, according to the news, if someone has five hours a day, I think they can cook with the kid. Now your question, if your schedule is too busy, what to do? Well, you've, as you've posed it, if your schedule is too busy to do something, you're too busy to do it. You can't do it. It's impossible if your schedule is too busy. You're asking, if you can't do something, how can you do it? But if you can't, you can't. But I suggest that believing you can't is a story that you tell yourself, a story that we mostly tell ourselves. We tell ourselves how busy we are and that we can't do something. But is that, can you change that belief? If you change that belief, might you find things differently? What has happened to us, that, to our lives, that we feel that we can't feed our children healthy, delicious food without hurting other people's children, without exploiting other people. If we're polluting, everything's wrapped in plastic. We're polluting. That means it hurts other people. What happens if we teach our children, there's nothing I can do to feed you except to hurt others? I can't blame people for believing that. If we grew up in a world in which people don't know how to cook and, and didn't grow up learning how to cook for themselves, you know, we've had several generations like that. 
I can't really blame people, but we, no one else is going to take responsibility for changing that except us. The companies aren't. They're profiting from it. And if we buy their stuff and we buy takeout, we're promoting, we're building that business model, which is to say we have to change ourselves. You have to change yourself. You have to change your beliefs to where you believe you can. If you can't change that belief, I don't know what to say, but we, we can. What do you value more than time spent with your children, making them healthy, experiencing nature, and not harming other people? I can't answer that question for anybody. But what do you value more than time spent with your children, making them healthy, experiencing nature, and not harming other people? I believe the response is, but I have to pay the rent, and I have to go work, and that's what I have to do. If that's what you have to do, I, I can't. if you don't have time for something, you don't have time for it. And there's absolutely nothing that I can say to change that. But I suspect that we believe things and if we didn't believe those things it might shake out differently so it's a rhetorical question i mean you value your children's health and time spent with them and you don't want to teach them that eating requires hurting others but i practice the spodic method because i know of no better way to restore the balance people have lost because our society teaches capitulation abdication and resignation over do unto others as you would have them do unto you over live and let live, over leave it better than you found it. That's why I, you know, I don't want to single anyone out, the, the asker of this question, but it's so easy for us in our culture to capitulate, to abdicate, to resign, rather than to challenge ourselves. Again, I'm not a parent, so I can't say what I did. Oh, I can tell you a huge role model is B. Johnson. She was a guest on my podcast. She decided to try to live a zero-waste lifestyle. And when she says zero-waste, not zero, but you, know, you have that as a target, that she would always try to endeavor to reach more. So she did it on her own. Her husband was not back, did not back her at the beginning. And her two sons, who I think were in their teens, or maybe, maybe one of them was under 10 years old when she started, she started on her own, and they were not backing her up. But by the end of it, the boys got on board, and the husband got on board, and they all got on board. The husband did some calculations and found out how much money she was saving the family, which was like 40%, I think. I forget the numbers. And the end result, the four of them, now, for context, I like to point out how I'm approaching three years not having filled one load of garbage. Their family of four, including two young boys, produced less than one jar full of garbage in a year. So I'm nowhere close to them. Actually, I can recommend her book. I really enjoyed reading it. So B. Johnson, I think it was Zero Waste Lifestyle? Zero Waste Something. So B. Johnson is a great example there. Also, another podcast guest, uh, Josh, Joshua Becker. He's also an author, and his story was how he moved into a minimalist lifestyle, as he put it. He was clearing out his garage. He set a day to clear out the garage of his stuff or clean it up and then play with his son. So he goes out to clean the garage, and he's cleaning, cleaning, cleaning. And his son is like, will you come out and play with me, Dad? And he's like, soon, soon. I, I just have to clean this up. And the entire day passes, and he still hasn't cleaned out the garage. And at some point during the day, he's standing there in the, in the driveway and his son is unhappy. I forget the exact details, but his neighbors come by and see the situation and say, maybe you don't need so much stuff. And he began getting rid of more and more stuff. And the more stuff he got rid of, the more time he spent with his family. And that's been my experience as well. The more I get rid of stuff, and stuff is not just physical material things, but low-level priorities, the more time I have for family, friends, community, for example, uh, unplugging my apartment from the electric grid that I've been doing for the past six and a half months has led to, you know, since I can't watch screens or screens drain the battery really quick, I, I spend time outside of my apartment. I've been volunteering a lot in my community more. 
because I have extra time. People think of all this, what they feel saves time often does not save time. So my consuming less power and polluting less in my apartment has led me to volunteer with my community, which leads me in the community center where I, where I do the, the work. I'm meeting more and more people who they're the salt of the earth. They've come to get to know me. This wouldn't have happened otherwise. Anyway, this is not answering the question, but I think a lot of people, except to illustrate that a lot of people feel like they don't have time for things. And I think that that's a belief that when we challenge it is not based in what actually happens. We've had several hundred years of labor-saving devices and we're working more hours than ever. It seems to me that there's some systemic effect here that something looks like it may save time in the moment, but overall, all these changes seem to be taking more and more of our time I'm moving in the opposite direction and I'm finding more time. And that's not just me. I'm finding communities and communities of people finding that less labor-saving devices gives them more time. I mean, statements about time are really statements about values. So when someone says they don't have time, people have time for The time is there if you're not doing other things. If you're prioritizing other things higher, well, then do the higher priorities and you don't have time for your kids. Or maybe the time spent uh, working is the best amount of time you can spend with them. But if not, can you find ways to spend time with your kids? I think that when you challenge that, you'll find role models of people who have done so. Anyway, I think I'm saying the same thing over and over again. Thank you for the question. Anybody else, if you have questions about sustainability, about leadership, about sustainability leadership, about doof, about uh, packaging, about whatever I can help with, go to joshuaspodek.com, upper right corner, contact connect, and send me your questions.